I've been waiting to preach after that intro video for so long. I am like, okay. Was there faith in the room? You know, what I feel in the room is that there's a healing grace in the room. During worship, I felt like there was a healing grace, an emotional healing, perhaps a physical healing, but particularly I felt like the Lord was administering an emotional healing to some people who are torn up inside. Let me just read this real quick. I wasn't planning to do this, but we're here now. Uh, Psalm 73 came to my mind in worship, and so I was reading it, and maybe this is for somebody today. The words of the psalmist always speak uh, and verbalize things we might might be feeling but don't have the words to say. He says this in in, uh, verse 21, Psalm 73. I realized that my heart was bitter, and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you, yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Who have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail, my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. I just want you to know if you've been in the place of bitterness or your inside's all torn up, you feel far from God and like God wants nothing to do with you. He's the portion of your life. He is the stronghold of your life. He is your chosen portion forever. He still chooses you. Amen. 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 All right, we've been in this series for a handful of weeks now, and um, we are moving through the book of 1 Peter. We're, we're basically doing a verse-by-verse study of the book of 1 Peter. And up until this point, we've um, categorized it under this idea of developing a theology of suffering for you, which I love. And don't you love that you have pastors that want to give you a theology of suffering? Like, I love our, our team here, man. Um, and now we're going to enter into a place where we're not just talking about how to persevere through a trial, but we're going to talk about how we live in the reality of the struggle. Uh, because there are some things that are, that are promised, like life is difficult. And so there are some portions of life that don't necessarily end. You just, you live in the tension. And so, so Peter, who wrote the book we've been studying, is going to help us figure out what are some of the things that mark us as people who live in the middle of the struggle. Up to this point, he's talked about how we have been born again to a living hope. We've received a revelation that angels wish they could understand. We've been given an imperishable seed, and we are now formed together as living stones. You've heard it said here, uh, we've been formed into a fireproof people. And although, Peter writes, we must live as exiles and sojourners, meaning we are now citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and yet we have not fully stepped into our kingdom, so we are living in a land outside of the land that is ours. We're living as exiles and sojourners. And as a result, Peter writes, we have to uh, live life waging war against the passions of our flesh. Not just to persevere, but to intentionally live an honorable life in a way that testifies to the gospel and gives glory to God, even in a world that rejects our message. So this isn't just about making it through a hard moment. This is about making hard moments the one that bring God the most glory. This is about having your life be a living, breathing, active testimony to the truth of the gospel, the power of the gospel, and the reality that Jesus' work on the cross transforms people and transforms people who transform systems. 
And it's, you're going to find it's as, it's as challenging as it sounds. Uh, what we're going to walk into tonight is going to require real sacrifice. Um, Peter's not going to pull any punches over the next several weeks and passages that, that we dig into. And we're going to venture into territory that I think will make you feel uncomfortable in some respects. I think the perspectives you're going to hear as we continue through this letter are going to sound really different from worldly perspectives you may have grown accustomed to hearing. And so we're really going to have some friction, perhaps, in our souls and the message that we hear uh, from the Bible versus what we've hear, heard um, in life regarding things like submission, authority, citizenship, servitude, what it means to be a wife, what it means to be a husband. And Peter's going to teach us how the gospel produces people who interact with the world differently because we begin to act according to our original design and God's original intent for us. In other words, we're going to find out how we're built different. Oh, sorry, that's the wrong series. Okay. Uh, what do we, oh, tried by fire. Okay, how we're tried by fire. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to give you a sneak peek for midweek over the next couple weeks. This is a long series because we're going through the whole book of First Peter, and uh, I think we, we're going to take a break in the middle of it, uh, take a three-week break in September, so in a couple weeks, and um, I got a dear friend of mine who's going to come, and we're going to preach, I think, three built different messages here on Wednesday night, which I'm super excited about, so stick around. Uh, but tonight, we're talking about how we interact with the world as those who have been transformed by the gospel, and how Peter starts us off is by ha ha having us take a look at the way by which we interact with authority, which is a bit of a doozy. Uh, the title of the message tonight is A Man Under Authority. Would you stand with me as we read the Word of God tonight? We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read verses 13 through 17. This is the Word of the Lord. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. The cliff notes, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, reveal yourself to us through this word tonight. Come and have your way in this service. Father, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you. Would this text be preached with clarity and accuracy and integrity. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that would understand what the spirit of the living God is saying to us in this place, I pray in Jesus' name. Would you say amen? Amen. And yes, you may be seated. So my belief is that we are born resistant to authority. I don't think that's a skill any of us have to learn. And if you don't believe that, spend some time with children. I have been confronted this reality with this reality in my own house. Uh, the idea that a child who is not yet seven years old believes they know more about life than me, a full-grown man, the college degree, driver's license, and a bank account literally placed in his life for the purpose of teaching him how to interact with the world, 
how to walk through life, how to figure things out, how to interpret and understand the world around him. That is like my wife and my function in their life. It's part of the reason God put us in the household. And so they'll ask me questions about life and I will give them good, honest, true answers that they can hear, digest, and understand. And they will ponder my answer and go, "Mm, yeah, I don't think that's right. And I don't even know what to do with that. I don't know where that comes from. I know my children are strong-willed, which I'm grateful for because I believe strong-willed children are leaders. So I'm not trying to squash that, but I am trying to figure out what do I do with this natural resistance, this natural desire for autonomy. You know, every morning, every morning after breakfast, we do three things. We go upstairs to get dressed, to brush our teeth, and to make our beds. And every morning after breakfast, Time to go upstairs. What? Now? Why? Are you kidding me? I'm like, what, we've done this as long as you've been able to brush your teeth. This is what we have done every day. Is this a, this is a surprise to you? But if I'm honest, it exposes something in my sons, which exposes something in me, which is that if I'm honest, I don't like doing things I don't want to do. And I like to decide when and where I do what I do. I don't really like to be told what to do if I can be quite honest. I don't know if you're like me like that, but I like having autonomy over my life. And so sometimes the most simple things with my children become the most serious power struggles for no reason other than the reality that we all have an interesting relationship with authority. Authority is an issue of the heart. And it might be one of the most important issues of the heart that we can talk about as as we talk about coming to faith in Jesus as it comes to interacting with God and the Holy Spirit as it comes to interacting with the world around us. I believe this goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the original sin. God gave one command, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So one rule, guys. It's not even a three-parter. It's, a one, it's one thing you don't do. And the temptation was, yeah, but if you do it, your eyes will be opened, you will become like God, and you'll be able to determine and decide what is right and what is wrong for yourself. You'll have the knowledge of good and evil. And humans can't resist taking control. We can't resist the temptation of having autonomy over our lives. We're resistant to any other way, which is a big issue because of three important truths. One is this, we are born into a world of authority. Whether you like that or not, whether that rubs you the wrong way way or not, it doesn't doesn't matter. There is hierarchy in every human system. The family, the government, your workplace, the church, everywhere you go, somebody, everybody has a boss. You might be a leader and yet you know you're accountable to somebody else. You might be at the bottom of the food chain feeling like you got 10 bosses. But everywhere you go, whether it's parents, the president, your senator, your manager at work, or the CEO of your corporation, there is hierarchy everywhere. So there's no way to avoid interacting with authorities in your life. And yet, the second truth is that sin makes us want to be the one in control because sin places us at the center of our world. Sin makes us desire that everybody else should cater to me. Everybody else should do what I say. And when they don't, that really messes me up. Because if they would do it my way, we wouldn't have any problems anymore. Everyone would be happy and everyone would be fine. Sin puts us at the center. It makes us be the one who wants to be in control. And the world that we live in confirms that this is a good worldview. It says you ought to live your truth, follow your path, write your story, and do what makes you happy. And a lot of people subscribe to that worldview because it sounds right. 
sounds good. To be honest, when I read those, I go like, well, I don't know that any of that really bothers me or violates me, except that I know myself. <laughs> and I know how untrustworthy and unreliable I am when it comes to following my heart or even what the desires of my heart are. So sin puts us at the center of our world. It makes us want to be the ones in control in a world where we're not in control. And so what that does is it produces a power struggle against the people and the systems in our life. So we live in this constant tension and conflict between those who are in authority over us, the ones we might be in authority over, and our desire to be the ones in control, and yet Pastor Tiffany preached a great word this year that said control is a fraud. So even though you want control, there's no sense of the actual real control. And so what I'm saying is we find ourselves in this tumultuous place when it comes to our relationship with authority, our desire to be in control, and our inability to do so. And so instead of living in unity, peace, harmony, self-deference, and self-awareness, we live in the opposite, and we're resistant to people we feel might be resistant to us. And this is where you see so much of the tribalism and individualism produced in our society and in our hearts. You know, if, if y'all can't make my world easier, I'm just going to do it by myself. Like, I really don't need you then. I'll just do it by myself. Individualism. Why? Because I can't get my way. I'm not in control. I'll just do it without you. Tribalism, and it's your group against my group. It's us against you. And if you're not with us, you're against us. And so we find these divides begin to fracture our society, all based down in this root question of this inner resistance to authority. Now, I believe we have an interesting relationship with authority. I believe we need to learn a biblical one. But before we get into that, we have to ask what to me was the very obvious question, which is what if you have a really good reason to resist the authority in your life? Because it can be taught that like if you have authority, you just need to obey them and do whatever they say, and that's godly. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, I think, dismantle that slightly today. I'm going to do it real carefully because uh, I think it's a really important truth to get here. But if the authority in your life is asking you to sin, to violate the commands of God. The, the government in your life is legalizing and approving things that the Bible says we should not legalize, we should not approve of, and you have a really good reason to resist the authority. How do you live in that with attention of what the scripture says, which is be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution? Let's make it deeper. Because the context Peter's writing to is saying, uh, what if the Roman emperor who is in authority over you is using his power to persecute and to kill those who follow Christ and you happen to be a person to follow Christ? Do I have to be subject to them as well? See, we need to be beyond the point of going like, well, do I, do I listen to the president if he's a Republican and I'm a Democrat? We got to be way past that. y'all. I know a lot of people aren't, but let me just tell you, we need to be way past that. The, the issue... The issue that Peter is drawing out is so much uh, deeper and more severe. The stakes are so sharp. Do I need to submit to an authority that is abusing its power to persecute and kill my people? And do you know what Peter's answer is? Yeah, you do. So we're going to break that down because um, it's going to mess with you a little bit. It messed with me a little bit, I think in a good way. But where I want us to start is I want us to start with understanding what it means to submit, what it means to be subject to something. Let me reread verses 13 and 14. Peter writes, be subject to, for the Lord's sake 
to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. The phrase Peter uses here for that, for that phrase, be subject to, is the Greek word hypotasso. You know we're not preaching if we're not getting some Greek into our bones. Okay, this word hypotasso obviously can be translated to be subject to. It literally means to place or rank under something, which is what the word submit means. Submit means to place, to put yourself under another. So hypotasso means to place or rank yourself under another person. So I want to be clear that the biblical perspective of submission is an intentional choice that you make. It's an autonomous choice you make to place yourself under the leadership and authority of somebody else in order to elevate and honor them and the role God designed them to play. It is not abject obedience unless your authority is God. All right, so we're going to be, we're going to, well, I'm going to dance around a couple of very thin lines here tonight. So stick with me and hear me with ears to hear. To earthly authorities, I do not believe biblical submission implies abject obedience. And I'm going to make a case as to why here in a minute. But it is a willful choice that we are called to make as believers to place ourselves under the authority of the people and positions God has placed in our lives. Because our relationship to those systems, the one that God's created, when we interact with them well, we honor and glorify God instead of ourselves. This word hypotasso is the same word that Paul uses in Ephesians when he talks about the Christ submitting to the church as the image for how a wife should submit to a husband. Again, an active, willful, intentional choice. It does not speak to ability, equality, capability, worth, value, or anything else. It simply speaks to the order God created and the choice for a wife to come under the leadership of her husband. And I just want to be so, so, so clear that the weight placed on a husband ought to be a thousand times heavier because of the responsibility that comes with somebody saying, I choose to trust you as the leader in my life. I don't have time for a marriage message, but I love preaching on that, and I will again. And there's so much there. So just, again, ears with grace, stick with me, and we're going we're gonna to move through this. This type of submission applies to government leaders, uh, to your spouse, to your supervisors. It, apl it applies to your parents. It doesn't mean that the authorities in your life are always right. It doesn't mean you always agree with them. It doesn't mean that they're perfect or better than you. It just means that you are making a willful decision to honor God by the way that you relate with the people that he has put in your life. That's the heart of it. That's the root of it. That's why we do it. We honor the role God designed when he designed government. We honor the role God designed when he designed parents. We honor the role God designed when he designed marriage. That's what we're doing. We're interacting with the things that God created. Okay, you still with me? All right, praise God. Don't hear what I'm not saying, which is that you need to do whatever any authority in your life says. You need to do what God says. People are not God. 
And we need to apply biblical common sense. So what I mean is this. If the governing authority in your life is requiring you to do things that are immoral or against God's law, biblical submission is not saying, well, the law of the land is greater than the law of God, so I have to follow the law of land even when it requires me to break the law of God. Okay? But if you are submitted, if you are subject to the human institutions and authorities that God has placed in your life, then you can gracefully and humbly disagree with them, perhaps even disobey them, but it means you are accepting, because you're under the authority, the repercussions of defending God's honor and God's law. All right. Biblical submission to earthly authorities does not imply full unflinching obedience, but it does require accepting the consequences and the judgment of the authorities in your life, even if their judgments are not biblical or fair. Okay, I told you we had a tough word tonight. It's a deep word, it's a hard word, but Peter is challenging us. He's calling us into something. I'll give you some examples if you don't believe me as to why I reached that conclusion in scripture. Daniel 3 tells the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I saw an Instagram reel this week where this woman said, how come y'all didn't tell me it wasn't Shadrach, Meshach, and a billy goat? I lived my whole life thinking it was Shadrach, Meshach, and a billy goat, and I just found out his name's Abednego. I just give that to you because it made me laugh. Three Hebrew boys who were exiled into Babylon under the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, who built a golden statue. He was the king, the authority, the beginning and the end of that culture. He was it. And he says, I built a golden statue in my image, and all y'alls need to bow down and worship it. That is the authority issuing a command, giving a decree, making a statement, writing a law. And they said what? Uh, we can't do that. We can't do that. Did they dishonor him? Did they overthrow him? Did they blaspheme him? Did they speak illy of him? No, they said, we don't even have to make an excuse to you. We don't have to give a defense. If it be so, our God will deliver us from the furnace and out from under your hand. And even if he doesn't, we still won't serve your gods or worship the old golden image. And guess what? They got thrown into a fire. Just, that's what happened to them. There have been many other Christians throughout history who were also thrown into a fire, who did not make it out alive. Let's hold that intention when we read the story of Daniel 3, like, God will deliver me out of anything. And there are plenty of martyrs who have died at the hand of wicked governments and rulers who have sought to persecute and to kill them. The boys didn't know how their story would end. They had faith God would deliver them, but they literally said, but if he doesn't, I still can't obey the authority that's over my life, but I will honor it. I will make myself submitted to it. This is Esther before the king. The king had issued a decree at the advice of, of Haman to annihilate, to eradicate all the Jewish people of which Esther was one. And according to Persian law, approaching the king without a royal request was an act worthy of death. You do not just roll up on the king and ask him to change a law. Do you understand? That's not how that works. Okay, so even coming into his presence, he could decide to kill you. And she utters the immortal words, if I perish, I perish. What is that? But submission 
to the authority in our life and yet a willful choice to say something wrong is happening. I can't allow something wrong to happen. I can't allow God's people to be hurt, harmed, and killed. So I will go for them, but I submit myself to the process at hand. This is David before Saul. Didn't take the opportunity to kill Saul. There's a bunch of them in scripture. Let's keep going. My point is this. None of them dishonored the authority or sought to overthrow them. They stayed submitted in their lives and they trusted God for the outcome. Now let's contextualize this in our passage because we can't receive from Peter until we understand what Peter was trying to give to the people he was writing to. So before we pull this truth down for us, let's understand the context. Around the time of the writing of this letter, Nero was the emperor of Rome. And I don't know what you know about Nero, but Nero was a bad dude. Like when you think of like bad Roman emperors, put Nero up near the top of the list. Nero was so bad, his own mother didn't think he should be the ruler. Do you understand how bad it has to be for your own mama to be like, nah, he ain't it. He's not the one. It was so bad, she was so against, and Nero had his own mother killed. He didn't like his wife, so instead of divorcing her, he had her killed as well. You may have heard of the Great Fire of Rome. The Great Fire of Rome, part of what we're talking about, tried by fire. And what I want you to carry with you through the rest of this series is that the Great Fire of Rome burned down a significant portion of Rome. And many scholars believe Nero started the fire himself for two reasons. One, to build uh, what it, uh, it called his golden house, which was this domed landscaped complex for art and gardens and stuff. He's like, I want to build this for myself, so I'll just like, I'll burn Sully Station down and then I'll build like a mausoleum, right? Like that. But then he used that to blame Christians, saying the Christians were the ones who started the fire, so that then justified his persecution of the Christians. So Nero... And it is to fellow Christ followers who are living in Roman-occupied territory to whom Peter says, it is the will of God for you to be submitted to every humanly created institution, even Nero. In fact, do it for the Lord's sake. You want to talk about a heavy, hard truth. So what is the Bible asking us to do? The Bible is asking us to honor God's design, intent, and order. It's asking us to walk in Christ-like character in the way that we interact with the authority structures in our life, which means what? It means are you passed up for a promotion unfairly? You better believe you're not talking bad about the system, the selectors, or the candidates because we are honoring the authorities in our life. Policies instituted that violate your biblical conscience and irritate your soul, make your skin itch, you best believe we are a people who do not sling mud and muckrake and talk bad and belittle and disparage our leaders, whether we agree with them or not. Why? Because God says, be subject to them. Amen. Honor who? Everyone. And he comes back, honor the emperor. Because I know y'all thought everybody, but of course, like, yeah, I'll honor everybody, but no, honor everybody. Parents have done everything wrong you can imagine. You best believe we honor our father and mother because a commandment with a promise. We've got to stop believing that life is fair and come to terms with the reality that our role as Christians is not to get a fair shake, a good deal, or all the benefits. Our role as Christ followers is to reflect his image in the earth. That's why we're here. 
we're here to represent him well, to be a witness and a testimony to Jesus, which means we get to share in his suffering, which means we get to share in the lack of justice that he experienced. It means we get to live a life where you might do everything for others, serving others, loving others, giving money, giving time, giving everything you've got for the benefit of others, and you might still be accused of having ulterior motives, a different agenda, or have some kind of issues with your character. That is the portion Jesus had. Our job is to reflect his image into the world. The reality is this. God has always worked through the existing powers, people, and leaders to accomplish his purposes in the earth. And the people he's always used have always been fallible sinners with fatal flaws. No matter what point of history you look at, no matter what system, what organization, no matter where you look, what you will find is incapable, sinful, and all wrong leaders continually put in charge. And yet, I'm not trying to depress you, and yet, God's purposes always prevail. Do you understand how good God is? That he knows exactly what he's using? Proverbs 21 says it like this. It says, the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills, which means it's God's job to turn the heart of leaders. It's our job to honor the person in the role God created. We've got to trust the Lord because to reject authority is to reject God because he is the authority over all authority. Okay. Now, here's something you didn't know about me. Let's take a breather from that for a second. What I bet you didn't know about me was that back in the day, I used to be a street baller. <laughs> Not sure why there's so many laughs at that. Just thought that was, would have assumed you would have known that, but okay. Back on the concrete courts of Centerville, Virginia, back in my heyday in high school, we'd run the streets over by the Safeway every day after, yeah, the mean streets of the wealthiest suburb of Centerville. <laughs> uh, and what I lacked in natural athletic ability, speed, jumping ability, stamina, I made up for in pure competitive fire. I need you to know there's a dark side of me that y'all have not seen. And there's a reason I had to die to that competitive side of myself a long time ago because it only brings out the worst in me. I'm the youngest of four boys, so I grew up competing with my brothers. Obviously, when you're the youngest, you get beat up on all the time. And so that just made me angry, made me fiery, made me competitive, made me want nothing more than to beat them. So this competitive start, spark uh, uh, turned on in me. And like my discipleship group will tell you, because that's probably the only place I talk trash now is to, my, to the guys I disciple. There's a side of me. If you poke the bear. <laughs> Just saying, man, I can, I do words for a living. It's what I do. I diagnose the human condition and I use words to do it. So I'm just saying, if you're going to come, you better not miss. Okay. Here's what I've learned. Here's what I've learned. <laughs> When you're on the basketball court and someone's talking trash in your face about how garbage you are, how great they are, blah, 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 there's really only one thing that's going to shut them up. And it's not talking back because all the jaw in the world makes a trash talker talk more. They love it. They eat it up because now they've got you focused on them. There's only one thing that shuts up a trash talker on the basketball court, and that's scoring on them. That is hitting buckets that have no business going in. It's breaking apart their defense, exposing their weaknesses, dismantling their whole team, and you do it without saying a word? 
You see when like Steph Curry just flips the switch. He stops talking. You know what you do in that moment? You don't keep talking. You shut up and hope he gets bored is what you do because you have no hope. So I'm saying there's only one thing that's going to silence a world that speaks illy of Christianity. There's only one thing that's going to testify to the goodness of God, the glory of the gospel and the grace of Jesus Christ to a world who doesn't want to hear anything about it. There's only one thing that's going to communicate a message to the world that they don't want to hear. And it's not your words. It's your deeds. It's not about how many good things you can say. It's not about how you can tell us what's good and what's not good. It's not about anything you can speak. It's about what you do with the words that you speak. Paul says it is the will of God that by doing good, you would silence the ignorant and the foolish people in your life. We have developed a model of Christianity that is so interested in hearing ourselves talk. We want a soundbite, a clip, a, a pithy saying. We want to turn a phrase on a scripture. We want to take that scripture. Everybody's heard and go, you know what? I just figured out in 2023 with no college degree, no seminary, but I now know what this scripture means. And I'm going to tell all y'all what the Bible really says. We have a culture that's looking to be heard, a Christian culture. Let me be clear. A Christian culture that wants to impress with their words and not with their deeds. But what if instead of talking about it, we would be about it? Because they say talk is cheap. And if talk is cheap, it means actions are expensive. Which means doing what you say you're going to do is going to cost you something. Do you understand? Coming under authority, serving a world that doesn't want anything to do with you, living differently from the world lives, is going to cause, require sacrifice. It's going to require pain. You're in the middle of a, the start of a fast tonight. Part of the reason we fast is to get comfortable with discomfort because the Christian life is one of self-control, self-discipline, denying the flesh, to live by the Spirit. You can't do that out there if you can't go 24 hours without some food. God says, seek my face, hear my voice, lay something down, deny your flesh so you can get close to me. And we go like, I can do like three hours? How will you stand before a world? that wants to destroy your faith, destroy the church, and disparage the name of Jesus, it's going to cost you something. We need to become familiar with paying that price. And it's not going to be by what we say. It's going to be by what we do. Verse 16, Paul writes, live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. You know, this idea of freedom, it's all over the Bible. We teach a class at Grace called Life of Freedom. It's really a beautiful and profound concept that I love in Scripture. The Bible literally says it is for freedom that you have been set free and that if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So this idea of freedom is this beautiful gift. It's a portion that God sets aside for the Christian. But I believe that a lot of us, have a wrong understanding of what biblical freedom actually means. And I had this goofy image come into my mind while I was uh, developing this part of my message tonight, and it was just goofy enough I knew I had to share it with you. So, um, you know, most people peel bananas wrong. 
told you it was kind of goofy, but just go with me. Most people grab banana by the stem and try to break that and peel down. And what happens is you kind of mush up the top. It doesn't always, doesn't always uh, uh, snap right, and you just kind of get a banana that's kind of messy at the top, but you get there in the end. If you ever watched a monkey eat a banana, I told you it was goofy. Just stick with me. If you ever seen a monkey eat a banana, they flip it upside down. They open it from the bottom. It peels perfectly. You don't get the bruising. You don't get anything like that, okay? All right, stick with me. I think for many years, many of us have had an upside-down view of what freedom is. We've been peeling the banana from the wrong side. You still get to the fruit. It's just not as good as it could have been if you came to it the right way. Most of us come to the idea of freedom of what do I get for my freedom? What can I now do as a result of being free? What do I no longer have to deal with as a result of receiving the freedom that Christ has given me? I want to be free so that I don't have to deal with junk anymore. So it's not entirely wrong, but it's not entirely what the Bible says either, right? So we, let's, let's look at these. Throw, these, throw this list up. What does the Bible say that we are set free from? The Bible says we are set free from the bondage to the slavery of sin. So we're set free from sin. The Bible says we're set free from the law, specifically in Romans, the law of sin and death. Okay, No longer under the law, we're under grace. We're set free from serving ourselves and we become free to serve others. Echoed in our passage, we're free to live as a servant of God. In John 8, we're free to know Jesus as the son of God. So, that's not comprehensive. That's not every scripture in the Bible, but that's, that's, that's enough for us to get going here. And you know what I never saw in the Bible was I'm, f- I'm, I'm guilt-free, shame-free, consequence-free. I can drink what I want, do what I want, date what I want, when I want. I never saw any of that in the Bible when it talks about what type of freedom I have. Now, we're free from the bondage to sin, which means we are no longer walking the path we used to walk, which is like, I can't even help myself but sin. I don't even know any better. I'm just yoked to it. God breaks that yoke in Jesus and sets us on a new path. Now, you can choose to go back to your sin, but that's a choice you make. You're not a slave anymore. That's a choice you make. But, but, I, but I never saw this idea of freedom that says, now God ain't mad at me no more. So now I can do what I want because God's grace covers a multitude of sin. The love of God will forgive me. And you know what that's called? That's called an abusive relationship where you take the good gift of somebody that's meant to heal and restore and redeem you and create intimacy with you. That's why God freed you from those things for the purpose of intimacy with you. And you go, thank you, I'm free. Now I can go back into, back into the world. We've taken the freedom God has given us and turned it into a freedom that serves our self-interests. We've taken the freedom of sin and turned it into the bondage of self. In other words, we've exchanged one set of shackles for another and we've called it freedom. Paul admonishes us in Galatians. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Uh, Let me get to concluding here. Biblical freedom isn't freedom from authority. Biblical freedom is living under the right authority. Tim Keller says it like this. 
Because a fish absorbs oxygen from water and not air, it's free only if it's restricted to water. If a fish is freed from the river and put out on the grass to explore, its freedom to move and soon to live is destroyed. Real freedom isn't restrictionless. It's finding the right restrictions. There is no life apart from restrictions. Because what you do when you live in that space is you become a slave to yourself. You pursue your passions, your lusts, and your desires. You become a hedonist. And that is a bondage of its own making. So what is the right authority? And let's talk about how perfect Jesus is and we'll close. Paul lays it out for us in Romans 6 verse 19. He says, you used to offer yourself as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness. So now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness. He continues on in verse 22. Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness and the result is eternal life. Man, I know this is a hard truth to swallow, but this is what it means to be a man under authority. Yes, we, we submit ourselves to human institutions, but we do that because we have one ultimate authority. We do that because we're under one perfect authority. We do that because I've exchanged my yoke to slavery to the yoke that Jesus wears. See, I know it doesn't sound very good to be called a slave to anything. I, I understand. Especially in our context, and our culture, and with our history, it's almost it's a vile term. And yet Paul is making a powerful and a profound point, which is that God has purchased you back from death. He has brought you out of the pit of hell into his presence. And our response is not, thank you for setting me free, I'll go on my way. Our response, if we understand that, is what you want from me, I'll give to you. Where you send me, I'll go. What you say, I'll do. We become... Uh, servants to God under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Lord, Lord means master. When you get uncomfortable, that's what Jesus being the Lord of your life means. It means he's the master of your life. So we accept Christ's leadership over us. We break free from the bondage of sin and use that freedom to lead others into that same type of freedom. In short, as I close, this is it. We do what Jesus already did. Jesus subjected himself to human authorities, even unto death. He stood before high priests, through Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, Pilate, even Herod. He allowed himself to go before the authorities that God had set in place. Do you think that the maker of heaven and earth did not know who the governing authorities were when he was to come into the earth? God knew exactly the corruption of Pilate and the problems with the high priests and the issues with Herod. That was the place, he said, that's where I enter the human story physically. I'm going in there, and I'm going to subject myself to the authorities. Now, he did not compromise God's law. He did not compromise the values of God. And in doing so, he had to accept the consequences as a result of it. He was able to both honor God and the authorities that he was under. And in doing this, he fulfilled a purpose far greater than just gaining notoriety or doing things his way or having people do what he said. In doing this, 
He becomes the sacrifice we needed him to become so that we can become like him. And he did it in a way. His life to this day stands above reproach. You can say a lot of things about Jesus, but you can't mar his character. He used his freedom not to serve himself, but to serve others. So when we are called to be subject to authority, to take our freedom and use it to serve God and to serve others instead of serving ourselves, do you understand? God says, I've I've done it for you. I'm not asking you to do anything I've not done before. So this now begins to radically transform the way we view the world, which is why Paul concludes this passage with these incredible words. Honor everybody. Who's deserving to be honored by you? Everybody. All the people. Love this brotherhood. The people that you are called to be in community with. The people that God has knitted you together with. Nobody drives you crazier than family. I got it. Love the brotherhood. Be committed to them. Pursue them. Build with them. Fear God. Don't fear man. Don't fear systems. Don't fear policy. Don't fear structure. Fear God. Hold him in reverence in your heart. And just to be clear, when I said honor everybody, that includes the emperor. That includes the leaders over your life, the parents God has given you, the authorities in your workplace, in your job, in your volunteer organizations, in your government. Honor them too. And in so doing, you behave as Christ behaved and your life no longer testifies to the quality of your character. Your life testifies to the glory of God, the goodness of the gospel, and the grace of Jesus Christ. That's why we're here, to reflect the image of him to this earth. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much, and we thank you. The portion that you've given us is a hard one, but with you, you say the yoke is easy, the burden is light, and so Father, we commit ourselves to standing in the way that you have called us to stand in relation to authority here in the earth and our own souls. We thank you that you have set us free. And we use that now, God, to serve you, to honor you with our whole life. Lord, help us be a people that reflect your love to this world. Help us, God, be a people who die to ourselves, who crucify our flesh. Help us, God, be a people who do not prioritize comfort but prioritize sacrifice so that this world would see how much you love them, how much you desire them, and how much you care for them. God, use us as a church. Restore and redeem our families. God, repair relationships with parents in this room right now, God, those watching online, where there's been a pain and a frustration and that's resulted in dishonor and rejection. And there needs to be a place for repentance so that honor can be restored not because they're worthy of honor, Lord, but because you have deemed us to give honor. And we will give what you've called us to give. Lord, I pray for every heart who's heard this message tonight. I pray for those hearts that you're healing in this place tonight. Let your grace flow to them now, Lord. Would you mend the broken places and restore them to a strength stronger than they were before? God bless this people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you guys.